Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Varl Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. Uh, we also have close to 200 uh, interviews on SoundCloud and iTunes, our podcast. So we encourage you to uh, listen to some of the extraordinary guests we've had in the past. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and ZDNet. Most importantly, he's a terrific futurist uh, and analyst to follow on Twitter, at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Vala. I'm happy to be joined with my co-host, Vala Afshar. You guys can follow him at V-A-L-A-A-F-S-H-A-R if you haven't. Uh, we'll talk more about Twitter in a little bit. But Vala is, as you know, the digital evangelist for Salesforce. But more importantly, a big contributor to Huffington Post, one of the top CIO and CMO influencers in the world. And more importantly, my partner here on Disrupt TV. So who do we have? What's going on? We've got an awesome pre-show. I hope we can carry this over. <laughs> yeah, we typically tune in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes before the show and talk to our guests. And we had an amazing uh, discussion with our first guest. Our first guest is Barry Ritholtz. He's the co-founder and chief investment officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Uh, Ritholtz uh, Wealth Management was launched in 2013, and currently the management firm uh, overlooks over $530 million in assets. In addition to running the wealth management and financial planning firm, Barry is also a frequent commentator on many financial topics. In fact, he was named uh, one of the 15 most important economic journalists in the U.S., uh, Barry writes a daily column from Bloomberg View and a monthly column on personal finance and investing uh, for the, on the Washington uh, Post. He's also the creator and host of Masters in Business. This is a you know, 90 to 120 minute deep discussions with some of the most important and influential people in business and finance. In fact, it's quickly becoming Bloomberg Radio's most popular podcast. He's an excellent follow on Twitter, and this, I'm hopeful to learn more about Twitter with our conversation with Barry. You can follow Barry at R-I-T-H-O-L-T-Z. Welcome, Barry, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me, and I, and I appreciate you guys taking so much effort to actually make this happen. Our, our calendars have been pretty crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, no, and thank you for being on the show. Hey, so let's start with this conversation around, you know, the latest Nobel Prize in economics. You know, Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize in economics for his research on behavioral economics. Um, and tell us a little about his research and how software developed startups can use this research to build more effective solutions. I don't know if you listen to a lot of the podcasts on NPR these days, too. A lot of behavioral economics is coming in play. Um, but is it real causation? Is it real attribution? Does it really make sense? Or are we still out there guessing? So a couple of things. First, this is an area that I've been elbow deep for almost 20 years. I began my career in finance as a trader. And now you're, you're on a trading desk. It's a long line of people in front of a whole string of monitors. And I was always curious, the person on my right and the person on my left seem to be doing the same thing all the time. How come this month this guy's making money and this guy's losing money, and then next month it switches? 
And it turns out it's not so much the information or how fast they were or how smart they were. It was how they processed cognitively, how they processed data and managed their own behavior in response to that. And the long story short, and this will get to Thaler, the long story short is we evolved to adapt to a dangerous and changing environment on the savannah. And that's a million plus years of, of evolution. When we're making economic decisions, uh, in the markets it's 50, 75 years. If you really want to talk about things like Japanese rice traders or, or European tulip bulb traders, all right, it's a couple of hundred years, but that short period of time isn't going to counteract a million years of, of evolution. So we, we engage in certain behaviors in response to information because they've worked to keep us alive. The, the classic example is pattern recognition. We think we see patterns all the time because if you're walking in the tall grass and you jump because you think you see something in there um, and the person next to you doesn't, well, maybe nine times out of ten you're wrong and there's nothing there. But the tenth time there is something there and you jumped because you thought you recognized something. You've now subsequently 100,000 years later, you've passed those genes down to many, many people. The person who didn't jump, well, they couldn't pass their genes down because they became someone else's lunch. And there are a million examples of all the ways that we're wired for survival, and it doesn't really help us when we're trying to make intelligent decisions. That's amazing. So, hold on, hold on. So, so you're saying that logical decisions and emotional decisions, how do they tie back to behavioral economics? So. It turns out that, not surprisingly, the basic fundamental building blocks of economics assumes that people are rational, that they're profit maximizers, that they can, they can perfectly calculate all the options that are in front of them, that they have self-discipline, that they can think long-term. And then in the real world, people don't behave that way. No. You know, if, if you tell people um, someone is considering surgery because they're they have a condition, if you say to somebody ninety five percent chance of success, the vast majority of people will do that operation. On the other hand, if you present it as well, there's a five percent chance that you don't survive the operation, a huge number of people won't do it. No. The fact is, they're the exact same numbers. So because we have this sort of loss aversion, because we overemphasize the downside and underemphasize the upside, look, there's a reason the news tends to be negative. When things are really great, that's not news. You could go back in history, look at what took place at Kitty Hawk. That didn't make the news for, for many, many years. Mankind starts flying. Um, why is it? Because that's not an existential threat to your ability to procreate and pass your genes along. <laughs> However, look at the impact of man's ability to actually fly in a heavier-than-aircraft. It, it's tremendous, and, and there are all sorts of examples like that. There is no survival benefit to noticing what is improving. However, there's a huge survival benefit 
to noticing what's getting worse and is potentially a threat. And a lot of that comes back to a lot of the behavioral decisions that are made in the realm of economics, all of which leads to Richard Thaler was this heretic in, in economics. Uh, oh, yeah. I, call him, I call him a heathen who basically, <laughs> instead of just shrugging his shoulders and saying, this, this uh, rational man nonsense in economics is crazy, he for decades kept identifying what he called anomalies, but in reality, it's how people behave in the real world. And suddenly you have a model that says, well, people are rational profit maximizers and we'll allow for a few outliers. And he helped invert that entire model. No, people aren't rational. No, people um, uh, aren't profit maximizers. They, they engage in all these behaviors. And a really perfect example, you mentioned what can software companies, what can startups do? Uh, his thesis is, main thesis is called nudge. You could take some basic uh, choice architecture and set it up so that the default is the right decision instead of letting people have to agonize over decisions and, and very often just postpone it because they don't want to deal with it. Two perfect example: you start a new job, you get a 401k. And the old rules used to be, all right, well, as soon as you set it up, we'll start putting money in it, we'll start allocating it. Instead, every 401k, according to Thaler, and I agree with him, should be set up with the default that you automatically start contributing money to your retirement. And if you're not going to pick a portfolio, here's a standard portfolio we're going to give you. Oh, and by the way, check this box. And every time you get a raise in salary in the future, your 401k contributions you'll kick in a little more. Um, around the world, the other example that he has given in terms of understanding how people operate, no one likes to think about their own mortality. And that's why in most states in America, you have to affirmatively check the organ donation box, which is part of the reason on your, on your driver's license, part of the reason why there's such an organ shortage for transplants in the United States. In various countries that Thaler has consulted with, his simple solution was, okay, if you don't want to, after you're dead, if for whatever reason you feel compelled to keep your lungs and kidney, well, then you have to check this box and opt out. But the assumption is everybody else is going to give, um, everybody else is going to have that box defaulted as a check. And in countries that do this, there isn't a three-year wait for kidneys. There isn't a two-year wait for hearts. There is a, just through the normal course of human, you know, accidents and, and uh, mortality rates, there's a sufficient supply of organs to be go around. And that sort of choice architecture takes advantage of uh, the basic psychology. We don't like to think about death, but it has, surprisingly, not wanting to think about death individually leads to a higher mortality rate for everybody else. <laughs> There's a nudge there. <laughs> There's a nudge there. You have had, I think just this year alone, 41 podcasts of your Masters in Business. My favorite one, which is an absolute must podcast for any startup founder, any entrepreneur, any venture capitalist, was the one you had with uh, Mark Andreessen. Oh, okay. It's just like, just like 70 minutes of joy. Uh, 
I mean, you talked about math of venture capital and the returns. You talked about disruption. You talked about the no bad ideas, only ideas that are early. You talked about the big Ruth effect that you need to strike out enough to, you know, hit it big. It was just in, like a graduate level class in, in entrepreneurship. And then you wrote about pace of innovation and disruption is accelerating. And you mm -hmm. talk about digital platforms and that combinatorial effect that's really disrupt, disrupting businesses because entrepreneurs, inventors, coders now can do even more innovation with today's platforms. Can you talk a little bit about one? Okay, so the question is this. Your favorite podcast of the 41 you've done, I want to put you on the spot. Mm -hmm. And mine was clearly the recent discussion. And then a little more context around digital disruption and how you need to really be adopting a beginner's mindset to survive in this economy. So, so first, the Andreessen podcast generated more complaints than any other podcast. Complaints? People said, you know, I always listen to your podcast at 2x. He talks so fast and there's so much material. It's so dense. <laughs> I had to listen to it in real time. Where I listened three was, times. I listened three times. It, it, it was, was, it was like, one. boom. Number, was number boom. two, the hilarious part about that, so we actually... You know, I always do it in the Bloomberg studios. In you, were the the room. Room. you were there in the room. Right, right. So he is one of the exceptions that I know he, he doesn't travel yeah. and we have plans to go out there. So that day, when it, how, here's, here's how crazy my life is. In the morning, <laughs> I have Mark Andreessen as a podcast. Awesome. <laughs> in Andreessen Horowitz, I have Nobel laureate Bill Sharp because I couldn't, I literally could not find a conference room in Silicon Valley, and Andreessen Horowitz, they were so kind, they were so delightful to work with. They're like, use our podcast, you can bring Bill Sharp in here. So in the <laughs> afternoon, I interviewed him. That, that weekend, we fly home, and that's the weekend that the opening of the HBO show Silicon Valley is using the exterior of Andreessen Horowitz. And I'm like, wait, I, my wife and I are watching this, I'm like, that's where I just was. I was just in that building. <laughs> and I just had lunch at the Rosewood. <laughs> it was crazy. So that was a really, really fun podcast. Awesome. If, I, if I had to program a double feature, Rich Barton, who's the former Microsoft engineer who founded Expedia, who founded Glassdoor, who founded Zillow. I mean, he's really, he, I think he's the most interesting guy nobody has heard of. Although there's probably a hundred people who, who qualify for that. Hey, um, some, of these, some of these guys are UTR intentionally. They, they're like under the radar. So yeah. but hey, you lead, this, leads, this, this leads to a great point though, right? You, this, there's a crisis of culture going on with Wall Street to Silicon Valley, right? I mean, a few years ago, MBA students were all, you know, they started heading to the Valley post-graduation instead of Wall Street. And now we've got a little cultural issue here in Silicon Valley. And so, you know, there's this thing about Silicon Valley. Has America fallen out of love with you in TechCrunch? What do you think? Is that, is that happening? Is it the same? Do we bring the Wall Street culture to the Valley? Or was the Valley already corrupt? It's totally cyclical and it goes back and forth all the time. So if you think back to like the late 90s, Wall Street was having a hard time hiring programmers, quants, et cetera, because there was so much money flowing to Silicon Valley. Then that little dot-com thing happened. Suddenly, there's a rush of MBAs and programmers and, and math uh, quants going to Wall Street. That worked for a couple of years. Then 08, 09 happened. Lo and behold, suddenly the MBAs and the programmers 
hey, let's let's go back to that technology thing on the it it, it goes back and forth on a regular basis because people react. It's called the recency effect. People tend to overemphasize what just happened yeah. as opposed to looking at the longer term picture. And so instead of saying, hey, everybody's fleeing Silicon Valley, I could probably cut myself a fantastic deal and be a little bit of contrarian. I'll get a good, better job with a bigger slug of stock, maybe a little more responsibility for someone who's 24, 25. We're not programmed to think that way. We're thinking, uh-oh, everything really hit the fan over there. I better try the other coast. And people can are reliably um, susceptible to that sort of groupthink. It's, it's important to try and look at, look, the crowd is right most of the time. That's the fascinating thing about being a contrarian. You have to recognize, hey, you know, when the crowd is cheering for, for the team, you just scored a goal, uh, for the most part, they're right. But there comes a moment when the crowd becomes an ugly mob and they start flipping over cars and, and burning buildings down. Being able to identify that moment is, is helpful professionally, whether you're in finance or, or anything else. Sure, sure. Is that true for mixed crowd as well, or? I'm, you know, I'm not familiar with that team. I, <laughs> I, I was a season pick. I'm not gonna bring it up. I'm not gonna bring it up. Uh, <laughs> well, I, was, I was a season ticket holder many years ago during the Patrick Ewing era. Yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. pretty much, um, you know, there's only so much heartbreak anyone could withstand. If I haven't <laughs> mentioned that the group that owns the Knicks are probably the worst sports owner um, anywhere in the United States. I don't know if I could say the world, because um, I don't know how terrible they are elsewhere, but in the United States, they are clearly the worst professional franchise owner anywhere. And the sooner they sell the Knicks, the, the happier everybody in New York will be. The last time I enjoyed, I think it was Bernard King era, but, but that's going back a few years. Charles Oakley, Anthony Mason, John. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Absolutely. Great era. All right, so much for James Dolan there. Um, I got a question for you. So this behavioral economics that's in place, right? Can we model this in AI and machine learning? Is that going to happen? Because what you're talking about is those are anomalies, right? We're looking for clusters of anomalies here, a cluster over here, something that's an aberration. Is it a false positive? Does it work? Have you been looking at this? Is this something you see that may evolve? Um, that's a really interesting question. I think we're not quite able, we're not quite there yet to be able to really fully model this. Um, but, you know, software will eventually get there. You, you mentioned uh, Andreessen early, earlier. I think he was half right when he said software is eating the world um, because, well, software is mostly eating the world, and in a lot of other instances, it's almost but not quite there. And I ha I, So whereas Thaler kept examples of human anomalies, I, I keep examples of I don't understand why this technology isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. And Google is probably better than anybody at that compared to Amazon or Facebook or Apple or whoever, but or, or Uber for that matter. But uh, And Netflix is another one. I, I have a running list of, I'll give you a perfect example. This happened the other day. So 
There is a type of pizza called Roman pizza, and it's called Roman, R-O-M-A-N, because it's what they serve on the streets of Rome. And it's very different than New York pizza or Chicago pizza. It happens to be incredibly delicious, but unfortunately, you can't get it here in New York. Until, oh. until about a month ago, when a place opened up a few blocks from my office, and having just been in Rome a year ago, we went there, and the food was amazing. Just crazy delicious. Oh, my God, I can't believe I, you know, it, it, was, it was dietetic having it 3,000 miles away. Now that it's three blocks away, I'm in trouble. So, um, so it's raining. I'm holding an umbrella. I have my iPhone in my hand, and I go to tweet as I'm leaving, finally, here in New York City, authentic Roman pizza. Now, let me point out. I just took a photo of the pizza. I'm standing in front of Mani in pasta Roman style pizza, right? That's it's all it's on the thing, it's on and I tweet it and Siri identifies that as authentic woman pizza. And <laughs> it wasn't just a damn you autocorrect moment. It was now wait a second. Here's a picture of pizza. I'm in front of a place called Roman Pizza. How did you not figure this out? Am I expecting too much from you? Or are you just a dumb transcriber? And I have hundreds of examples like that. So while I don't doubt that one day software will eat everything, we're, we're the transitional era where software hasn't quite gotten it right yet. And I have examples from Amazon and from Uber and from Netflix where when you just step back and look at it, really, we're not at the point where the picture of the pizza and the, what is woman pizza? It's all for one letter. I, a, I hope no one muted or blocked you after that. <laughs> I, the, response is, the responses were fairly hilarious from me. <laughs> Ooh, a handful of people immediately knew what Roman pizza was, and everybody else just had um, amusing and somewhat off-color um, comments. But if you if you Google authentic woman pizza, you'll find the whole thread. It, it's pretty pretty. Fun. We we are here with Barry Ritholtz. You can follow him on Twitter at r i t h o l t z. He's an American author, newspaper columnist. Uh, if you following on Masters of Business uh, podcast on Bloomberg Podcast, one of the top podcasts, but more importantly, the chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Thank you so much for being on the show. Please come back. This is Please awesome. And I apologize for not answering your questions. I I don't know if I actually got to. <laughs> We'll save it for next time. Absolutely. We'll save it for next time. This is awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. What an amazing, he's, he's a must follow on Twitter. His Bloomberg columns are amazing. But do yourself a favor. Listen to the podcast. I'm telling you, many of them are graduate level, uh, you know, in-depth discussions. And again, if you're an entrepreneur, business leader, or interested in finance, uh, it's just, just an awesome source. Um, so speaking of entrepreneurs and, and, and startup founders, our next guest is Michael Robinson. He's the CEO and co-founder of One Pebble. Uh, they're the world's first and only investment broker that gives back 50%, that's five zero, 50% of all profits and makes uh, 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 your trade uh, fees and tax deductions. The company's using a multi-billion dollar financial, financial market to give hope 
around the world. Uh, Michael has been doing this uh, philanthropic, uh, 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 inspiring work for a long time. Previously, he served as the president of Food for Orphans, an international charity that provided millions of meals to children all over the world, uh, in 25 countries around the world. And he was also the founder and CEO of Velocity Collective and Investing Hope International. He's passionate in seeing people with great vision, discover the true success that's within them. And the key in all of that, and we'll talk about that, is people discovering hope. Uh, he's um, another great follow on Twitter, at M-I-C-H-A-E-L-R-O-B-I-S-O-N, Michael Robison. Welcome to Disrupt TV. Hey, guys, man. I, I, of course, I have to follow Barry. So I, you know, <laughs> you said it. So we'll, the, the middle spot's always the top spot. <laughs> I know, but hey, listen, just squeeze me in trial by fire, right? We'll see if I can turn this thing out for you. <laughs> no, no, but you're in good shape. You are talking about hope, right? Yeah, man. Hope absolutely. trumps all. Hey, <laughs> I mean, listen, we're in good we, shape. It is, the, it is the definitive theme of life, but it's really funny where you guys ended with your discussion with Barry because the discussion of behavioral economics and, and modeling Actually, in, in the technology that we're building at One Pebble, that's actually the base engine. So we do have AI built into our advisory software. And so the idea behind it is value-informed behavioral economics data. And so we're actually modeling archetype data, archetypal data built on um, personality profiles, emotional profiles, and then putting people's values, morals, ethics, that kind of stuff, and allowing us to kind of create, uh, you know, portfolio modeling, wealth management around that behavioral economics model, except that we're allowing the customers to actually verify the information versus making a bunch of assumptions because they're the ones who actually put their money where their mouth is versus just saying a lot of things about, you know, what they think, believe, or feel, and then talking about what they wish they had as a result of it. You know, that, that's a really good point, right? Because a lot of AI systems, we have this issue where that's not explainable AI, right? And yeah. what we humans are really good at is really finding exceptions, breaking rules, making things happen. Right. And one of the things that you can do is actually have humans test the false positives so that you actually get an idea of what's going on. So, okay. but let's talk more about, you know, how this ties back to your mission around hope or around giving back to Absolutely. hope. I think that's very interesting. You have a, yeah. you know, if people haven't been there on the South by Southwest clicker, um, there, you've got this uh, panel picker here that's, that looked at hope, the billion dollar disruption. Tell us a little bit yeah. more about that. And while you're there, if you can go to southbysouthwest.com backslash vote seven, five, four, six, seven, and you can actually, uh, vote in uh, right. the uh, panel. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I've realized, and I, I've, I've said this for a very, very long time, hope is that baseline of human need. And if we can provide hope to people, it kind of is, I call it the breeding ground for miracles, right? And I saw this when I was the CEO of uh, Food for Orphans. What we would always see is that even when you give, you're giving food to a small child in a developing nation, you know, they don't have a lot. I mean, I have a lot in the next day and a lot to hope for, but with a full stomach, it gives just that nice little bit of hope. It gives them the ability to make it to the next day. And so we take that baseline of, of human need for hope and that what it drives to our emotional health and our behavior if we can feed hope into our communities, and that may be right at home, it may be in your uh, workplace, it may be just in that general community, the city, city or community that you do life in, if we can perpetuate that in some level, it's pretty amazing what we're able to do with hope and what the impact can be in, in our communities, our, our you know, uh, relational equity especially. When I put hope in there, I'm more productive, other people are more productive. We see change happen, you know, whether that's a change in education, change in economics, 
Um, all of those things are possible when we give somebody the belief that they can hope in something. Sure, sure. We, Michael, we talked to Barry about disruption and the pace of innovation. And in his Bloomberg article, he referenced companies like Uber and Airbnb and many companies that have disrupted industries. And, you know, in your South by Southwest um, presentation and your thesis, you talk about true disruption in industry, culture, innovation happens when we join it with the power of social impact. That's right. And I work at Salesforce and many people think of Salesforce as technological innovation, business model innovation. Um, but the, in my belief, the 111 model, which was 1% of employees' time, 1% of our profits, 1% of our products, the philanthropic innovation that now 1,000 companies have adopted is really what fueled our uh, unquenchable thirst for innovation and adding value to our customers. Can you right. talk a little bit about combination of social impact and how that influences and separates the disruptors from the disruptee? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, for me, the, the modeling would be that if I can bring at each level, I mean, let's look at anything transactional in the world. We, we have the, the supplier of the good, whatever the good is, you know, in your case, you know, the supplier is Salesforce as a software and as a company, right? And then you have me as an end user who might be using Salesforce, obviously, to do exactly what Salesforce is to, to mitigate those relationships, right? But if in the center of that thing, I can put some sort of social impact component that really does have a great narrative, but a true impact on both sides. So it, it, is, it is beneficial to Salesforce, but it also is beneficial to the end user. All of a sudden, we begin to create the ripples that really do start to disrupt something. Because now the social good makes the end user feel good. You know, and it may be an emotional feel good. It may be a circumstantially to feel good, they may be able to tangibly feel good because they see the impact they have, right? Now, the, the, you know, the producer of the product or, or service, whatever, right? They also get the same feeling because they have a narrative of doing good. They have a feeling of being able to provide quality to their customers. But what happens is you complete the circle because your end user now equates that feeling, that good, and that, that experience back to the provider of the experience, right? And so by putting that in the middle, we actually engage both people in that narrative and can close the loop in a relational level. And to me, that's when the disruption starts to happen. It's no longer just transactional. I'm gonna pay you for a membership to a software suite that I then get to use to accomplish a task, right? Now I gladly give you this, you know, this subscription fee because I get to engage in a narrative and a story that makes a difference for me and I know you're enjoying the difference as well. So now we've joined hands and have a shared experience together. And we really have done something, whatever that something is, to really make an impact in the world. Makes sense. Yeah. Wow, and so I really feel like, yeah, I, I just feel like I think a lot of times we don't close the loop in those things, right? I mean, there's a little bit of that. We've seen it in, it, you know, again, the one-for-one -one model, right? The Tom's shoes, I'm going to buy a pair of shoes. A pair of shoes goes to a kid. But right. the, there's actually a disconnect in that model. At what point did I really interact in the narrative of giving those shoes to the kid? And at what point did the manufacturer the shoes really? And, and the reason is, is because there tends to be a middle ground in there where the, there's a, uh, a mitigator who does the service in the in-between versus inviting both parties into the narrative together. And one of the things that we want to do at One Pebble is as we do that with finances in particular, but that is our give, giving back 50% of what we bring in. Um, is the ability to say, okay, maybe it's the financial advisor, maybe it's Barry's office, right? And Barry chooses to work with our product. 
And so he comes in and brings our product as a, as a suite of opportunities for his customers or clients there in his wealth management. And so he invites them into the narrative and says, hey, we'll build you a socially responsible portfolio. When you do this, what's happening initially is these fees that are getting paid to be able to participate in this type of investing can then go to an, a narrative or an initiative or to a cause that matters most to you. So maybe it is feeding a kid in another country or cleaning up the rainforest or taking care of an animal somewhere, what, you know, whatever that particular thing is. Now Barry gets to be part of the story and linking the cause to the end user. The end user now gets to see their money go to work. They get benefit on both sides and the, the beneficiary of that hope product, whatever it happens to be, is also now pulled into the narrative and we've closed the loop and allowed people to see my wealth can do good, my personal choices can do good, my relationship with my broker or my bank or whomever is actually good. And it also raises the trust level. And obviously if I raise the trust level between the provider and the consumer or the yeah. producer and the consumer, right, we have more productivity and economics and commerce and it, it has a larger reaching ripple effect that can really make a difference in, in our community. No, makes a lot of sense. And you know what's interesting here, right? This gives us yeah. some context to talk about one of the areas around disrupting. And you put a historical perspective to disruption. I think that was very, very interesting for folks um, talking about, you know, what is that? In order to impact disruption, you have to honor what has happened before you, right? right? And right. this is the same thing as you're talking about, you know, if you want to give and, 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 and work with someone, I mean, if you remove the friction, the engagement, the interaction, you've taken away the whole heart of, right, you know, you know, doing something good and actually making something much more meaningful. Exactly so in disruption, right. you've actually created the same analogy here by talking about, right, if you're going to disrupt something, then at least, at least recognize what you disrupted, right? right? So uh, tell us a little bit right. more about that. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times you see it and, you know, again, I live in the startup world. I'm a serial entrepreneur. As a matter of fact, we're sitting in, a, in an incubator's office right now. So I live in a sea where, of people. Where are you in Austin? Where are you in Austin I'm a, right now? I'm, I'm sitting in Capital Factory. So uh, yes. we, we work up there. Now, we just, as a matter of fact, I just bought a building at 6th and Congress. So we're moving in. I'm taking prime real estate right in the middle of Austin. But um, so I love it. I want to be right in the heart of everything. But um Anyway, all that to be said, you know, when you get in a sea of disruption, right, especially younger entrepreneurs, and I think that, that sometimes it's part of it. I think youth and hubris plays into where people miss this element a lot, right, because they see, they really, maybe they see a very valid place for disruption or an opportunity to create disruption. But the problem is, is that disruption really doesn't happen unless you are adopted in or accepted into the system. You can't, you know, because it's almost like, um, you become a virus if you disrupt without that acceptance or adoption, right? Because what happens is I, I become a nuisance, not a, a, not a help, not a catalyst to the next level. And so when you step in as a disruptor, if I can honor what has gone before me, whether it's the system, the leadership, the principles, you know, the values, the value sets, whatever those things are, if I can honor those, recognize those, doesn't even mean I have to agree with it, right? Because those may be the very things I'm trying to disrupt. But I don't actually have the ability to gain authority or any type of integrity or trust with the people I'm trying to work in disruption with unless I honor what has gone before me. And also, I, you know, again, I think as, as we all get a little bit older in life, right, when, when I think, you know, as I, I knocked on the door of 40, you start to go, oh, like all the things that you heard as a kid, you start to go, oh, yeah, they were right, you know, um, and you start to pay more attention. I say that all the time. One of my co-founders is, is in his early 20s, and I say, man, you've got another 20 years. Just hang on. You know, like, you know we'll get there, you know, um, but what I've learned is I, 
I would have gotten where I am today faster had I, had I been humble enough to stand on the shoulders of the men who went before me versus try to have bigger shoulders than the men who went before me. And so in disruption, I think whether it's in technology or services or in any community outreach, I don't care what it is. If I can look at the people who went before me that were effective and good leaders and created maybe the very thing that I want to disrupt, I need to be listening and learning from them. I need to be gaining the insight from them and standing on top of those things and allowing that to be my, my foundation to move forward. And I think when you do that, a lot of times the, when you do that, those very people you're disrupting come along and help you create the disruption many times. All right, but, but real quick, how is it moving from 701 Brazos to 6th in Congress any closer to the heart of Austin? I know. <laughs> are, you like, are you just closer to fiber at Google on 2nd Street? I mean, what's going <laughs> no, on here? No, I mean, I'm, I'm literally, dude, I'm, I'm right there. We just, it's, listen, if you're here for South By, you need to come hang out. We're going to open the venue. As a matter of fact, we just talked to Aston Martin to stick a pop-up shop in during that time frame. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I'll say he paid for his whole rent with the South by deal. <laughs> oh, you're not kidding. I did. <laughs> not kidding. All right, man. Okay. So back to the regular show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, 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 I met with um, uh, a best-selling author uh, yesterday, Whitney Johnson, who wrote the book, yeah. Disrupt, Disrupt Yourself. Um, extraordinary. Uh, she was a, uh, a, a VC partner with Professor Clay Christensen, who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. So right. she's an expert on disruption, and 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 it, uh, she talks about um, and you talk about adaptability and ability to change, um, and you've written about enemies of change. You've you've noted that pride and fear and distrust and comparison and ignorance and finally apathy. These are the six enemies of fear. And instead of going through all of these, and I and I, I generally agree with your thesis. I mean, it, 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 certainly as someone who's managed uh, organizations in the past, I, I've seen all six of these elements as we try to change and disrupt ourselves. <laughs> Which one of them stands out to you most based on your entrepreneurial experience and the fact that you've been a CEO, you've led companies? Which one of these is really the number one reason people can't move forward in, in a different way? Honestly, I really think it's comparison. I think comparison, comparison. is a killer. I really do. And I'll tell you why. Because I, well, and again, maybe this is looking down the scope at, at younger entrepreneurs in particular, but I think in comparison, I start to either try to line myself up with that successful thing that I want to be, or I'm pushing myself down because I can't achieve that thing, right? So my, and really what it is is pride. I mean, comparison either, it either pushes us down and demeans us or it lets us stand in that hubris moment of being there. But when I look around, I mean, you know, I'm in the middle of, of finishing a, a raise for my company, right? But I sit in a room some days with guys who just closed a, a $20 million round and, you know, some days I'm struggling to pull in an extra $700,000 against the product, right? If I sit in comparison in that moment, versus in, in a reality of my moment of saying, obviously that person knew what they needed to do in that moment. Yeah. What can I listen to in that moment? Not compare the, the amount of money we are or are not raising together, but listening for the moment of saying, hey, this person obviously is a little more experience or wisdom that I might be able to gain from and live outside of comparison. I have the ability to actually do something great. Whereas if I live in comparison, I quit listening for the things that might help me actually accomplish my goal 
and start thinking either he's an he's a you know he's a jerk he took all the money out of the VC field that I can't have or I'm an idiot because I couldn't get what he got right so comparison stopped me from listening to a productive thing that might might actually change my progress or position right that's very that's that's sage advice no no I I I, I would I'm, I didn't think that that would, that would be your answer, but it makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Hey, now, yeah. real quick, what's going on in the Austin, Texas uh, startup scene? Is it on fire? Yeah. Are things picking up? Is it because all you know, the tech companies are coming in? Will, will, will Amazon end up in Austin? What's well, going on? I, They're coming to Boston. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm both, I vote they come here, but that's because I got real estate. <laughs> um, you know, actually, it's really good. You're seeing a lot of it here. I think what's going to be probably the game changer in Austin in the next couple of years is if we could, if we could finally have, after a while, a couple of unicorns pop up in the middle of what we're doing here, I think it would make a difference because what you've got here is you've got um, a great, vibrant group of startups. Um, you, you have a, a smaller set of kind of the bubble of infrastructure. Um, I think the one thing that would, that would set Austin on fire, truly set it on fire, would be uh, an influx of the larger viable VCs coming into the market here um, because your general VC market is pretty thin in Austin. And so like, even for me, we're, you know, we're in the midst of, we're at a $45 million valuation and a, and a moderate raise and my money won't come from the Austin infrastructure because the VC market doesn't support it here. So it has to come uh, from the Valley, yeah, no, no, it has to I mean, be in New York, Boston, LA, places like that. The Valley's definitely investing a lot in Austin, but you know, when you go back and think about the old Austin ventures, oh my God, they, they, right. they barely had any hits. So I think right. that's part of the reason, but you've got that's some right. big PE firms down there in Austin. That's so right. there's also a lot of stuff going on down there. Well, hey, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you can follow Michael at Michael Robinson, and you can follow One Pebble as well for some interesting things. And please check out the South by Southwest Picker on Hope uh, and, and catch Michael down at 6 in Congress for South by Southwest this year. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Wow. The brain power today. Oh my God. And guess who we have to clean up? This makes it even crazier. My head hurts already. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, well, we have a, you know, we have a, what we call our cleanup hitter spots. And uh, there's no one better than someone who's previously hosted Disrupt TV. And some of our highest ratings have been when he's been a co host. <laughs> so we're uh, thrilled to have. Esteban Kolsky, and Esteban doesn't like it when I go over his bio, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Esteban is the principal and founder of ThinkJob, an advisory and research <laughs> think tank focused on customer strategies, customer experience, customer engagement, growing revenue, retention, all of that good stuff. He's got over 25 years of experience in the customer service and CRM delivery, consulting, research, and advisory services. Most influencers and thought leaders in enterprise software go to Esteban for advice. So that's how important and smart he, uh, he is. <laughs> you can follow Esteban on Twitter because he's going to be back on Twitter sharing his wisdom at ekolsky. E K O L S K Y. No, 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 he's quit Twitter. Esteban. He's quit Twitter. <laughs> it, it ain't happening, dude. It ain't happening. So you come on. You've got. You've got. You've got your. Millions of followers waiting for you to come back. So welcome to Disrupt TV. Actually, you know the funniest thing is I quit Twitter. My follower, my followers keep increasing faster than before. So <laughs> well, I'm gonna stay up for now.
<laughs> what happens? Come on, he's, he's, a, he's in a green screen on the back. He's in a green screen on the back. We're going to put his Twitter handle back there. That's when right. Let's produce this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey. All right. Well, let's, hey, let's, let's talk about AI. your favorite topic, your favorite buzzword bingo, AI. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. What's going on with AI? So you've got some ideas about this. Let's talk about that. Yeah, and, uh, so the, see where you want to go with this, and we'll, we'll so get back to Twitter deal. again later. Um, <laughs> you can follow your favorite research house, Gardner, Forrester, whoever. They'll tell you how great it is and how it's going to change the world. Gardner says by 2020, AI will be creating jobs for us, you know, mere humans that they're just following and everything. But let's get down to business, okay? How Gardner, many companies? You, you were at Gardner for 10 years, right? Just one of the eight years. Eight, okay. <laughs> so when you're a Gardner, you live by year five or you live between eight and nine, or you stay there forever. Yeah. It's your choice. So, go ahead, go ahead, but, sorry. But Gardner says that you know, AI is gonna be creating jobs for us mere humans, but the reality is, when you go down to companies, and Vala, I'm sorry, I know you work for Salesforce, which is depending on AI and Einstein to rule the world uh, until Dreamforce at least, we'll see what comes after that. Uh, but you know, you. <laughs> yeah, let's change the Dreamforce, trust me, it'll be a different thing, so. <laughs> But, but AI, really, when you come down to, to, to what companies are doing, there's not that much going on with AI. There, there's a lot of trials. There's a lot of, like, small projects. There's yep. a small things, like, you know, like, like everybody's selling one simple solution. It's like, oh, I can make your, like, you know, recycling go faster by 20% by using AI. Or I can make your processes jump, you know, 10% in value by using AI. And you can do that with one small thing. But you cannot really apply AI to business the way that we think that it's going to be applied. So can we please just get off the hype of AI? And just go back and do something that is actually worth it. <laughs> we're in the first. We're in the first inning. I'll give you that. Oh, dude, we, we, it's not even gonna be a game around AI. I was doing this. <laughs> yeah. I was doing the same crap in 1986, and the only difference was it's faster now. <laughs> there's nothing. There's not a single thing we have learned about intelligence okay. in the last 40 but, years. But you have to be inspired when you hear Andrew Nick say that there are 1,200 freshmen at Stanford. That are now currently taking machine learning courses. I mean, that's inspiring. Okay. I mean, that, I have one word for you. Plastics. What's that? I have one word for you. Plastics. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went into I went into computer science because when I was growing up, we were told that the only way you would make a living in the future is by getting into computers. And I got into computers. And you know what? I love computers. I, I absolutely do. I spent <laughs> five years of my teen years using computers versus dating, and that shows. I know. But, but you know, it's just. Hey, wait a minute, with that, that awesome shirt, you couldn't, uh, with that awesome shirt. No, it's serious. I mean, here's the deal. Yes, I am, I am, I am inspired by 1,200 people, but during the first day, the first time the internet came around in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Stanford Cognitive Sciences program went from nothing to like hundreds of people enrolling. This is where Serge, Sergey and uh, Larry came from. So, I mean, yeah, we, we go in waves, but because there's 1,200 people there, doesn't mean that there's 1,200 people that are going to change the world. I mean, sure. let's face it, from 1,200, maybe five are, like, smart enough, and one of them has an idea that will change the world. Right. So, well, so we, we've had guests from, uh, you know, on Disrupt TV that talked about University of Toronto, Waterloo, Montreal. There was a $125 million Vector Institute investment, and now they're competing to become second to perhaps Silicon Valley in terms of epicenter of AI. There's a lot of energy, money at, at the undergraduate level, all the way to the 2,000 startups right now that make up the AI landscape. 
And you know, I, I but it's up to twenty-five yeah, but, million of VC funding. But how how short is your memory? In, in the early two thousands, we did the same about e-commerce and i everything, e everything, right? I spent I spent two weeks at the cyber, next cyber, week. baby, cyber, 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 cyber. I almost almost blew it there. See, that's how I'm dating myself. I spent two weeks. I spent two weeks at the Netscape Plex, which was what it was before the Google Plex. You know, learning everything about e-commerce and how it's going to change the world. And like, here we are, 18, 20 years later, and okay, yeah, it's part of what we do, which is what AI is going to become. But it didn't change the world. It's actually you funny. Know? There's an interesting stat that uh, Silicon Valley, only category in Silicon Valley that has failed Silicon Valley is e-commerce. It's the only category. There's only one, one left success story, which is eBay, which is not much to talk about. I mean, that's a, there's been no success in e-commerce in the Valley. If you, wait, if you wait 15 years, it's going to be the second category that fails Silicon Valley, AI. <laughs> it won't be blockchain because they're not investing in it. But that's another story. Oh, yeah, that's another one. That's another one. <laughs> oh, I can't even wait to get to blockchain to that's the that's, We're going to have to devote an hour to that one. Let's go to the, I, I, let's go to the mid-90s and talk about CRMs. So we're doing flashback bingo buzzword. Uh, where, where's the future of CRM? Future of CRM was 10 years ago. Now we're past the future of CRM. We are like, you know, Nothing. We're in the post-CRM really. era. <laughs> we, we're in the, uh, you know, seriously, I mean, we're in the orchestration era, to use a word that you gave me that, that I don't really appreciate, but my words are worse, right? We, we're in the orchestration area. We're in the era where, like, you know, post-CRM, post-HR, post-ERP, post-SCM, there's no longer a single function that, that you can actually do. This is going to be the biggest shock to every vendor uh, out there. It's like, you know, they keep trying to pedal applications that do everything where all the users want is simple functions they can use to create their own orchestrated environments. We can't tell users, digital transformation is going to change the way you do business, but until you do, you've got to do things the way that I do it, which is what we're doing by, by selling them, you know, more, more full functional systems. What you have to sell is a platform with functions and then users will build their own. It's incredible. The last six months, the conversations I had at the IT level, at the CEO level, where they understand that the whole world is going to be disrupted by having yep. to go into like a platform and ecosystem world versus having applications that do everything. So, I mean, CRM, it's been a good run. You know, I, I, I was with Tom Siegel when he said that like, you know, ESP was going to be the future of CRM and that we all grown. So thankfully it didn't happen. You know, and, and, and it's just, we're done with it. I mean, I, I'm actually writing an article that says that the whole purpose of CRM was to control relationships, not to actually build better relationships. And, and the thing is, like, you know, in the age of the customer, like Forrester calls it, in the age of, like, you know, no-code, low-code citizen programmers, control is completely gone. So if you don't have control, you don't have CRM. No, and, and well, it's something we're talking control? about. Which is is control, control. control, yeah. You can't control these relationships. I think everybody built systems thinking that they could. Um, that's the concept that Esteban is alluding to. Um, I was going to think about launching this at our conference, uh, which is October 24th to 27th, uh, this concept of infinite ambient orchestration. I might sneak peek it uh, next week somewhere, so uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But, okay, so let's say CRM is dead. Where's digital transformation? <laughs> we're on the debunk section okay. of Disrupt yeah. TV show. <laughs> so, so before we get to that, I had to make a correction because Cindy, Cindy Zhu, who works for Constellation, uh, put in one of the channels that uh, Amazon is a good example of e-commerce, and we can have that conversation later. But uh, I wanted to give Cindy, like you know, the, yeah, Amazon could be considered a success on e-commerce, but, but not in the valley. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's not in the valley, it didn't happen. So. 
actually, e-commerce did well everywhere else but the valley is what I was trying to say. So, so Cindy does have a point, definitely. So, but so, no, seriously, so For digital transformation all spend goes to Amazon in the in the U.S. So yeah. Oh, the, you saw the report, right? Every single company now fears Amazon more than Google or anybody else. Amazon is the most feared company out there. Oh, we're seeing anti-Amazon alliances pop up everywhere, whether yeah. it's uh, in retail, whether it's in like industries, even in healthcare. Like, ah, we're gonna have an anti-Amazon alliance, you know. I, so I have people that I have people that make fun of me because I still shop at Amazon versus Walmart, but we're not <laughs> gonna go there. I don't have enough show for that. I've never been in a Walmart. That's gonna. I mean, I go to Kmart or Target. I've never been in a Walmart, so someone's gonna have to okay. fix that. <laughs> oh, you go to Walmart at two in the morning. It's the best time to go. <laughs> Live disrupt TV show awesome. two in the morning at the local Walmart. We should do a live show. show we'll talk about behavioral Walmart. economics there. There you go. <laughs> What's what are people buying at two in the morning at a Walmart? Rest uh, so let's no, let, let's keep going. So AI is 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 just a myth. CRM is going away. Digital disruption is another myth. No, so what here's else? Here's a, no, here's the thing. Yeah, actually. So, 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 so I'm going to be, a, you know, contrary to what Barry did, I'm going to try to answer your questions, right? So, so. <laughs> <laughs> Barry was great. What are you talking about? You, you're no, now on his mute list. You're now on his mute list. This is who I aspire to become when I become older, you know? I love Barry. So, but, but to answer the question of digital transformation, this is actually something very interesting because, we, you know, five, six years ago, we, we started sounding the horn about digital transformation. Companies paid attention, they started going into it. Then they got out of control and they named Chief Digital Officer. Oh, sorry, Bala. Um, you know, Chief Digital Something or another. <laughs> How do I mute a guest? <laughs> I don't know. We don't have any controls ever. We're on Google Hangouts. We're going to need another platform. <laughs> so the, then they named Chief Digital, Chief Digital Officer. So they started doing all this stuff. But something that is very interesting is like in the last two years, right? The last two years, most organizations hire your favorite management consulting firm. Uh, to, to tell them what to do with digital transformation and put in place digital transformation initiatives everywhere, right? So they started actually going through that. In the last two years, they spent all this time and all this money and all this effort in building digital transformation strategies. And now we're actually coming out on the back end on like, you know, they're starting to implement these strategies. And guess what's the first thing that they're finding out? That to implement digital transformation strategies, yes, it's all about the data, but the systems that they have in place don't do squat for data management and data transfer and data flows. So now platforms and ecosystems are becoming the implementation arm of digital transformation. So basically what it is, it's like, you know, after two, three years of, of you know, doing all this work, we are at the point where Microsoft and, and Salesforce and a couple other smaller companies arrive and it's all about platforms and ecosystems. And the, the world is gonna change dramatically over the next five years from the hand of all these digital transformation you know, strategies that we used to make fun of because the management consultants we put together sounding all the same for everybody. And so you're saying technical debt and integration complexity is what's gonna be the uh, Achilles heel? I, I, I like the way you summarize my, uh, <laughs> my speech and uh, jargon words, my friend. I only think in tweets, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're 140 so, yes, characters in. Or 280. I'll tell you what, here's a tweet. Technical debt and inability to integrate. Inability. The problems. Okay. Oh, how about integration, uh, integration dysfunction? <laughs> Do you have ID? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so, so let me ask, when, when a client comes to you and they're, uh, they're a digital immigrant, they're a brick and mortar shop that 
doesn't understand or hasn't implemented cloud or mobile or social or, or yeah. what, what do you do to help? What do you? How do you guide them? Toward so, so the first the first question the first question that I ask is you know what what are you trying to do? Because if you have a business that is brick and mortar and it's working, you're making money, you're succeeding, and there's yeah. absolutely no reason for you to actually go digital. Why would you spend the money and the time? But, you know but, all this. But we know that's not a likely scenario. Most of the brick and mortar. Uh -oh. they're, they're, uh -oh. Well, listen. We'll start with race now. percent of Fortune 500 disappeared in the in the 21st century. True that. There's going to be like six Fortune 500s left in in, in 20 the, years because take they, the market like, cap of the 10 biggest brick and mortar retail, and they're 200 billion behind Amazon's market cap, including Walmart. So I mean, the, Sears is going going bankrupt. I mean, I can give you a list of brick. Yeah. That's right. Sears is the first one of all these companies that are going to follow suit because you know what? You cannot transform a brick and mortar into a digital corporation no matter what you want to do. There's not enough money, time, and resources to make that happen. What they, have you been trying? But, but you started by saying there are successful brick and mortar companies that are doing yeah. well. And they remain Costco. brick and mortar. Costco. Like, Nordstrom. Costco. 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 Nordstrom. Not, not, not Nordstrom. Costco. No, no, no. No, we, we had. We had uh, we had the ZDNet editor, uh, God, I, please. Larry Dingen. Larry, Larry, Larry featured Costco and their digital transformation. So, you know. But you're confusing two things. Costco, Costco is doing the same thing that Nordstrom is doing. Nordstrom is using digital transformation to understand their clients better, but their delivery is 100% brick and mortar. They're building this yes. new, like, you know, Nordstrom Essentials, which are basically experience-based, you know, sure. little outlets in, in, in different neighborhoods where, like, there's no inventory. There's no product in there. You just go there, you get the whole experience of getting dressed top to bottom using digital tools to make sure that you get the right things and then they get delivered to your house. I mean, they're not transforming themselves into a digital operation that is going to be 24-7 digital. They're actually optimizing their operations, you know, based on digital. In, in digital. This is a very for important now, thing. For now. We'll talk about <laughs> We'll talk about it in two years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, All right, no, Esteban, no. what was the tweet of the week? What is the tweet of the week for? Oh, he's not going to. <laughs> tell us about the one tweet you think is I'll tell you what. i tell you what. I'm not on Twitter, and I'm not even following the news anymore because it's too depressing, okay? But no, here's, here's what I learned. No, no, here's here's what I learned. Detox. Let's talk about your Twitter detox project. Why are you on a Twitter so, detox? And you should blog so, about this, so, and we'll tweet it for you. This is serious. <laughs> following the shooting in Las Vegas, there was so much crap on Twitter and so much hype and so much lies so much of everything that I realized that I'm becoming addicted to, to stuff being pushed to me and reacting to it. My, my stress levels, my, my blood pressure, they were just going off the charts. And I'm like, you know, this is impossible. I cannot deal with this. We have a, a, a president who, without making any political assumptions one way or the other, is an absolute moron and, and tries to wage a war over Twitter, okay? And, and this is just driving me absolutely freaking crazy and I couldn't deal with it. So I said, that's it, I'm done. I'm quitting Twitter because there's not, nothing in there that is worth it. So instead, what I do is whenever I want to you know, learn more about something because I'm not stupid and I see what, what's going on, I just go and find information about what I need. I know Come everything on, you've never lived in a totalitarian environment. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I did, and we're going down another one, but that's a whole different show, my friend. <laughs> it's too political for the discussion. But what, the, I the love, what I love is when we have discussions with Esteban, it's never controversial. It's usually... <laughs> Very objective, very fair. <laughs> I am very fair. Fergus is my middle name. Okay, one, my last question. Tell us about upcoming research. What are you authoring? What's your focus area for the next few months? Platforms and ecosystems. Sorry, one more time. 
platforms and ecosystems. That's that's all that. So I started the year with like four topics. I started with platforms and ecosystems, customer experience and engagement, uh, data usage, and AI. And right now, all those the last three are just flowing into platforms and ecosystems. And like seriously, every single organization is going to need to deal with this over the next two years, and they need to understand what is it that they need to do. And building a generation model for platform platform adoption. I'm building a lot of research and doing a lot of work with that, lots of different companies from pre-series A, early start cloud natives trying to build services to platforms that have been developed for many, many years and trying to like, you know, build a bigger pie for everybody. You are watching Esteban Kolsky, president and founder of ThinkJar, a Constellation advisor. More importantly, he's going to be at Constellations Connected Enterprise this October 24th and 27th at the Ritz-Carlton Half Moon Bay. And you cannot follow him on Twitter at Ekolsky because he's not paying attention. Oh, you can come to Half Moon Bay and watch my panel on ethics. Oh, um, lovely. Absolutely. Lovely. I look forward to tweeting it out. <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> Thanks for being on the show, Esteban. Thank you, guys. Happy Thank Friday. You. It's Friday. Bye. It's Disrupt TV show. What do we have next? Who's up uh, for the uh, lineup for our, oh, my God, which show number is that? That's going to be 84. Episode 84. Oh, my yes. God. Episode 84, and I think we're crossing our 200 guest list milestone. Um, we're going to be off. For, we are going to be off for a couple of weeks, I believe. Uh, but when we do come back, we're going to have EJ Kenny, SAP's general manager for consumer products, as a guest, Nia Sampan, CEO of Built.io, and uh, one of our favorite uh, uh, guests, uh, John Reed of Diginomica. So, and Ray and I might surprise you. We might do uh, maybe a couple of uh, impromptu disrupt TVs at the Constellation Conference, given the fact we have 300 of the best and brightest business technology leadership experts in the world at one place. So we do we get some great or uh, you know do a more formal formal show, but we'll see. No, we got some great folks. Anyone from Robert Scoble to Marco Tempest to Kim Scott from Radical Candor, Trisha Wong's gonna be there soon. You who's reading writing the book Iconic Advantage. Um, we've got um, some big hitters, Harry Clore, one of the founders of the X Prize. We've got Aaron Dutta, one of the founders of Viant Science. Uh, there, there's some big hitters. Burnt Wall, the guy who did created invented fractals is going to be floating around. Robert Scoble will be talking about AR, VR, converged reality. Vala's going to be talking about higher ed. Uh, we've got lots of folks, uh, lots of interesting interviews, um, major CEOs from software companies on Fireside Chats. And of course, it's our seventh annual Cosmic Feast, which is our little party for our clients and our customers. So, awesome. so hopefully see you. That's why we're off for two weeks. Um, but you'll see some fun stuff popping up here and there. Definitely follow Vala's Facebook live feed or Facebook's Periscope. Your Periscope. Are you using Periscope or Facebook Live these days? Have you Periscope. decided? Periscope. So follow Vala on Periscope. And uh, we've got some good journalists there. Ron Miller from TechCrunch will be there. John Reed from Diginomica. Um, and uh, yeah, so a lot of good stuff. It's going to be on. It's, right. By the way, I'm honored to make that uh, big hitters list you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and we've got Whitney Johnson. She's not speaking. She's just hanging out and enjoying the show. So you'll see some fun guests and people all around. So yeah, it's, sure. uh, alumni from uh, CCE. Absolutely. Well, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And uh, we really appreciate you guys as an audience. And uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.